Welcome back to the next episode. <laughs> I am so tired. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, hey, everybody. No, it's not our usual fun stuff, man. Hey, everybody. It's Murphy, my tired-ass friend, Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> it has been. I'm sorry, guys. Welcome back to Game of Crimes, another exciting episode. But first, we, we you know, just a little digression first. Murph and I were just comparing travel stories. Oh. And uh, in the last in the last basically eight days, I have been in Dayton, Ohio, Orlando, Florida, Denver, Salt Lake City, Phoenix, and Las Vegas. <clears throat> in four days, twenty-four meetings. Jeez. <laughs> uh, Salt Lake Airport is the longest damn airport because I had to fly Southwest as the connections between Denver to to Salt Lake to Vegas. Uh -huh. I'm on United going out and back, dude. I'm telling you that that's like you, you know. If you're on the United Salt you're going to walk like two miles. Yes. It feels like it anyway. Oh, and that, anyway, so we were just whining. So, but I got to <laughs> tell you one thing. It, I mean, sir, it's like, these are long days. These are like 18 hour days, but I'm cramming a lot of work into it because I want to do that so I have time to do other things. And Murph, I get to Vegas. I'm staying at the Westin on Flamingo, East mm -hmm. Flamingo Road, I think. And it's down, at, you know, by the action. It's right there on the strip. Yep. And of course, you know, some of the things Vegas is known for is gambling and, um, Companionship, let's say. Mm -hmm. That's so a nice way I, of putting it. Yeah, so I've checked into the West, and I mean, I'm, I've got checked baggage, but I'm carrying my baggage with me. I am tired, and I go to the elevator, and the elevator doors opens, and there's this lady coming out, looks fairly nice, fairly attractive, you know, and she starts to look at me and smile. And I said, don't even, I just got on the elevator and I, I was so tired. I said, I don't even want to talk. Just, I went to my room. It's like, I had a couple free drink tickets, you know, for the bar, which is, and I looked at that. I said, no, nah, I can't even do that, man. I was, oh, got there, got, cause I'm, you know, anal retentive. I had to press everything. I've got to have my, my jacket and everything ready for tomorrow. Yeah. My shirt. So I press, I get the iron out, press everything. Cause yeah. I got a six thirty meeting the next morning. Um, well, you're like you're like me, and, and I think Javier's the same way. I can iron better than I can pack. <laughs> That's true. You know? That's what so, irons are for. You the, know, the first even question as much as you train. No, I was going to say the first first question you ask at a hotel when you check in is there iron and ironing board in the room? That's right. That's <laughs> right. Sorry, guys. We just thought we'd rego. By the way, you had fun travel, right? Like uh, your crippled yeah. ass was. Uh, you missed a flight because they landed like what? You had one minute to get to the next gate. Oh, going to Toronto this week uh, or this past week. Flew from Orlando to Dulles, but the flight was leave late leaving Orlando due to. They said a fuel gauge wasn't working. Landed in uh, Dallas one minute after my connection flight took off. But the, the so the, the flight they got me booked on, I had to go through Newark. Then had to get off and hustle my old broken, crippled butt to a gate to get there. There was three of us on the plane, and, and everybody had already boarded the flight. The doors open, but there's no attendant at the desk, you know. And, and it's like well, crap. And there would happen to be a, a steward there uh, that was not on that flight. I guess he was deadheading someplace. And he was flying standby. And I said, is anybody working here? And he's like, yeah. And he said, I said, where are they? And they said, well, they're waiting on the people from the Orlando flight to get here. I said, that's us. So uh, uh, <clears throat> finally, the the desk attendant just comes slowly back up the walkway like, oh, you guys are here, huh? Well, yeah, we've been here like 15 minutes. Where the hell have you been? You know, but anyway, made it up to uh, finally got to Toronto about midnight. Uh, it, it could have been a lot worse. I might not have got there at all. But I'll tell you what, man. Met and hung out with the Peel Regional Police up there in Ontario. Super, super dudes. We're going to get some guests on from them for future episodes here of uh, Game of Crime. So they they got some great stories. 
Yeah, and I had to deprogram Murph for 15 minutes before we got on because he kept going, A, A, we got some guys from Canada, A. Can't spell I told Canada him, without A. I told him up there in the meeting, I said, we don't say A where I come from. <laughs> we say y'all. Anyway, oh, so, fantastic so, people, though. Yeah. So sorry for that divergence, but it was just one of those weeks. I mean, it was just... It was. Uh, it was. It, I mean, I have, uh, you know, for United, for 1K... Um, it's, it's like, it used to be like flying a hundred thousand miles, but it's a combination of flight segments mm-hmm. and stuff. So you have to get 54 segments and, uh, and then 18,000, what they call premier qualifying miles, mm-hmm. PQS. I am already at 25 segments and 8,000. I, I am almost halfway to one K and it's not even three months into the year. Yep. That's good. Good stuff. Uh, anyway, hey, so, sorry, sorry for that divergence. We don't normally whine like this. I mean, we do, but not right at the front. We work our way into it. So, <laughs> but I just couldn't. I, I can't pass up <clears throat> pass up an opportunity to talk about my tired ass friend here. <laughs> All right. So, anyways, though, guys. Hey, back to our regular housekeeping because that's what it says in the script. It said small talk. We we went a little long on small talk, but what the hell? Uh, give us that Apple review, Spotify, five stars. Uh, head on over to gameofcrimespodcast.com. Uh, for all things book-related, there will be a book. A, a unique exception we're making for this episode we'll tell you about. So head on over there. Follow us on that thing. Social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. Also head on over to Game of Crimes Fans, the fan page run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Woo-hoo. Answer a couple questions if you're deemed worthy. Just even get close, guys. Get into the inner sanctum to see what stuff is going on. But I'm telling you where you got to be is Patreon. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. And Murph, we got a couple good, I should say more than a couple good, we got a quite a few comments on our case of the month. We did a kind of a, a, a two-stage one. We did it on um, the Murdaugh mm-hmm. uh, case. So we just, you know, we just got into the facts. And do you remember what we did the second one on? Uh, was kidnappings in Mexico? Yeah. See, I'm glad you've remembered because I just forgot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought it was a test here. <laughs> it was a test. It was a test. No, yeah. It. <laughs> yeah, the, the kidnappings in Mexico. So no, but... Um, Katie out there, Katie, thank you for your comments. She said, hey, look, we didn't get into the drama, just the facts. Very interesting stuff about the use of technology, about how it's tracking your iPhone, whether it's in portrait or landscape mode, locked or unlocked, how many steps you're taking. All of these things now are, um, it's getting tougher and tougher to get away with some of these crimes now with the advent of technology. But look, we got some good stuff coming up too, Q&A. We've got some folks teed up for that. Terry Burroughs, Rapid Fire, Rick Jacobson, getting their questions in early. And Fred Nicolosi, getting their questions in early for next month. So if you want to hear what we have to say and what we think, not that you do, but if you do, you're going to find it over at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes with all our other good stuff. Right, Murph? There you go. Yep, absolutely. We're going to come up with... uh, and I'll get you uh, a list of movies we're going to we're going one of the movies to choose from that we'll review for this month also. And if you're wondering what that is, that's our narcometer. Patented narcometer. We rate rate movies on accuracy, authenticity and believability on a scale of 1 to 10 kilos. And by the way, Murph, I put it out there on the thing. Guess uh, speaking of uh, belie- unbelievable stuff, guess who I ran into out in Las Vegas? I saw a picture. Mark I Wahlberg. Saw the yeah, how about and I, that? I I introed I you know everybody's like this. I said screw this. I went over and said, "Mark, I do a podcast called Game of Crimes. I told him about you. I said, but we had Ed Davis on there. And we got to talking a little bit about Ed Davis because uh, mm-hmm. we did the whole Boston Marathon. Being, I told him we remued, reviewed the movie Patriots Day on that. I mean, he let me have about 90 seconds of his time. So I got all that stuff in there. But uh, we were at this place called Wally's Wine Bar uh, over at a big, huge Hilton thing. Um 
Conrad's uh, area, but uh, he was such a nice guy. Yeah. Um, got to talk with him for a little bit, and I told him, I said, hey, Ed told me that you took him by your gym. He said, but Ed didn't want to show up at 3 o'clock in the morning to work out, and he got a big chuckle out of that. I said, no, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's very pro uh, doing things for his community, especially with the opioid crisis that's going on. He supported DEA, and uh, he participates when they have the, uh, the, the get-togethers for the high school students, you know, and where you might bring in, you know, a few hundred students, he can pack in like 23,000. So, I mean, hats off to Mark Wahlberg for what he's doing. And and I told him, too, I said, God bless him, too, for doing his Tunnel to Towers things. There's two things I give to you regularly. Actually, three things. The Officer Down Memorial page, the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial, and Tunnel to Towers. Those folks out there are doing the Lord's work, and we appreciate them. So, Murph. Good job, Mark. Good job, Marky Mark. Guess what, though? What? This is a show about crime. Mm Mm-hmm. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take these stories seriously, but as we've evidenced over all of these episodes, what? (laughs) We never take ourselves serious, and we're not going to. Hell no. And I've got some fun um, because <laughs> because Salt Lake City Airport sucks when you have to walk four and a half miles. It took us 45 minutes to get out of the airport. Guess who I'm picking on this week? Oh, I bet it's Utah. I'm picking on Utah. So let's talk right. about this. Guess what time it is. It's time for... Small Town Holy Splatter. Hey, hey, hey. All right. Murph. Robbery. Uh-huh. Man and woman in Utah are accused of committing an unsuccessful crime spree that had entered a corral. With one of them lamenting that the pair belonged on America's dumbest criminals. You might ask, why is that? Let me tell you. Why is Jessica Lynn Savory, what a name, and Joshua Earl Campbell's criminal adventure began with the theft of a Green Ford Expedition SUV around 8 p.m. on Tuesday in the tiny town of Nephi, Utah. Population 6,443. Salute. Salute. Now, half an hour later, after a scenic 26-mile drive past the low-slung mountain ranges of Salt, south of Salt Lake City, the pair arrived at the subway shop on Payson, Utah's Main Street, according to the police, apparently in a hurry. Savory and Campbell opted, guess what they decided to do? They said, we're just going to rob you through the drive-thru. They pulled a handgun, <laughs> demanded money. Now, this is not this. We're getting into the good part. This is a longer story, but this is a good one. The drive-thru robbery was unsuccessful, and they sped off in the stolen SUV. Now, an eagle-eyed subway employee was able to give police a partial license plate number, and a dragnet came down across the county. Back on the road towards Nephi, where the SUV was stolen, Savory and Campbell were pulled over by a sheriff's deputy. Oh, this is this is going to we're getting to the good part. Um, <laughs> swinging the green expedition off the road and onto a farm, the pair parked the SUV and jumped out in an attempt to escape on foot. Now, Savory, the lady, was quickly apprehended, but her male accomplice Campbell ran towards an enclosure on the farm. Mm-hmm. He opened it and went to hide in there. When they have, when they found him and apprehended him, Murph, he was in a pile of cow manure that had been liquefied by recent precipitation. Oh, oh, nasty. And then you don't want to put him in the back of your cruiser. Oh, my God. No, we're hosing your ass down, pal. After the pair were being booked, Savory told officers that she and Campbell belonged on America's dumbest criminals for failing to get a single dollar. Now, according to the police, she definitely didn't think there were this This was their finest hour. She would qualify for that dubious honor. And the reason I throw it in there, because one of the episodes on America's Dumbest Criminals was filmed in Utah. They knew about that, so that's why they were saying that. <laughs> you know, I mean, you pull up, you're so damn sorry you can't even get out and go inside to rob. You just pull up to, I mean, it is convenient. You know, you don't have to get out of your car, but good Lord. 
That might be, we, you know, and we might have to include that on our next Patreon channel. If you can't make this shit up. Shit up. Literally. <laughs> Dive into shit. You can't make this shit up. Steve. Yes. Uh, second story. I'm only going to two stories because I've got some funny Utah law. So uh, right. this is about neighborly advice, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, Steve, you know, you you know, during your time, I don't know when you were working, how many people knew you were DEA, you know, when you were back, you know, uh, but it was easy when I was a trooper and stuff. You'd see the marked car. I had neighbors come over a couple times. Well, in Utah, Salt Lake City, a 37-year-old man was rearrested after he showed up at a Utah state trooper's home to complain about his arrest for drunk driving. The only problem was he had a beer in his hand when he showed up and he was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's called a rocket science. Uh, so police said the neighbor had called 911 last year to say he suspected Bell of driving while intoxicated, which he did. When Bell showed up at the trooper's home, the family called the officer who was on duty and he rushed home. Bell tried to walk away when the trooper told him police were on the way. The trooper ended up taking Bell into custody himself until city police arrived. He gets dumbass. It goes with our previous uh, one about the guy wearing the shirt, you know, on a Patreon episode, wearing the shirt that said dumbass as he got arrested. Yes. Yep. <laughs> you know, and that weather just really uh, keeps the peace and tranquility in the neighborhood, doesn't it? What a moron. What a moron. You act like that, you deserve to go to jail. Well... Just so that you know, speaking of uh, manure, the city of Logan has an ordinance against throwing manure. Wow, that's a good one. Yep. <laughs> it is unlawful for any person to throw, cast, or put into, drop, or, and leave in any street or public place within the city limits of the city any stones, gravel, dirt, manure, or garbage, or allow the same to intentionally uh, or carelessly drop off or be thrown from any truck. So if you can't throw rocks, so if you had a rock, you know, encased, uh, poop encased rock, it'd be doubly illegal. I think will be in trouble. Oh. No. Elephant, by the way, Steve, uh, do you know elephant hunting is strictly illegal in Utah? Well, I would, I'm, I'm kind of guessing that's not a problem there, but hey, what do I know? <laughs> I'm sorry, when's the last time somebody saw an elephant in Utah? <laughs> I don't know. i tell you what, man. <laughs> and, and here's the funny thing. All the laws come from stupid things that people have done. So there must have been at least one elephant in Utah at some point. The reason there is a warning sign on gas, propane, barbecues, and other stuff like do not stick your head over it while lighting it is because some idiot did that. There was a lawsuit about it. Now the lawyers get involved to prevent, to protect people from themselves. Yeah. CY. Well, Steve, uh, I think times have changed in Salt Lake, uh, too, or in in Utah. Um, Salt Lake City, city code, 8.12.200 states. You can't allow your cattle, horses, mules, sheep, goats, or swine to run at large or be herded, picketed, or staked out on any street, sidewalk, or other public place within the city limits. So no sheep herding, no goat herding, no horse herding. Can't do any of that anymore. Thank goodness, because it's already hard enough to find a parking place. <laughs> uh, you can't drive on the sidewalk. Yeah, that one's kind of thing. You can't, uh, you cannot, by the way, Steve, Salt Lake City Code prohibits playing or betting in any game of dice, slots, wheels, or other device for candy. You can't bet for candy. <laughs> you can do it for money, but just not candy. Just can't. Do it for candy. Yes. And uh, uh, a person operating funny. a yeah, a person operating a bicycle or moped shall keep at least one hand on the handlebars at all time. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, you, you kind of want to do that, but uh, also no, you can't you... use a bicycle or moped if you're carrying a package if it prevents you from having both hands in the control and operation of the bicycle and moped, so no clowning around out there, people. Hey, when we were young, that was the thing. You could ride with no hands. That made you cool. Well, here, 
here's the last one, then we'll get into our other stuff. But, uh, you know, as as you know, with Salt Lake City, uh, a lot of good people out there, but they have different laws about beer and stuff. So uh-huh. a retail licensee may not sell, offer for sale, or furnish beer in a size of container that exceeds two liters. Can't buy, a, you know, um, you'd be okay with a growler, which is 1.8 liters, um, or 32 ounces, just under a liter, even a beer bomber. 22 ounces, but you're not, you cannot buy a pony keg, a full size keg, or even a sixth of a barrel. Can't buy Why? anything. Why? It's Utah. What do the bars do? They just have a bunch of little bitty bottles? Little bitty bottles. Can't take them out there. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be lost out there, wouldn't you? Dude, I'm telling <laughs> Not moving out there. Okay, folks. Moving along. That brings it in. Uh, to the end of that. So, hey, we just want to hop into our episode here, though, because there's a couple reasons. Um, this, I think, we went just a little long on this intro, so we're going to make this pretty short. But um, I think this came to me, this episode came to us courtesy of my good buddy, Rick Zach at Microsoft. You met him down at ICP, a guy named Vince mm-hmm. Pancoke, or the German pronunciation, Vince Pancoke. He did a very interesting presentation uh, at ICP. And... Um, we we worked it out to where we'd come on, but he investigated one of the great mysteries, and I played this uh, in high school, the, the Diary of Anne Frank, a lot of people mm-hmm. have. He was the investigator on this. Uh, they did it after he retired from the FBI, and they wanted to get to the bottom of this. You know, what happened? And there's a great book that's out there. I thought he should have got credit for it, so this is the unique one. We're going to feature this book. Even though he's not on uh, as a co-author, it was his work. That facilitated right. this, but it's called The Betrayal of Anne Frank, A Cold Case Investigation, one of the coldest cases uh, we've ever talked about. And I love the title. It's uh, the part of the title. It says, Less a Mystery Unsolved Than a Secret Well-Kept. Yeah. Yeah, Vince was, uh, I, you know, I mean, you talk about, I like to say, uh, you know, with uh, Javier and I's little speaking business that simply because we retired doesn't mean our oath ever expired. And here's a, a perfect example of that where Vince is challenged after retirement from the FBI. I think twenty was twenty seven years. Yeah, and uh, and used all the skills that he had earned and learned while he was an FBI agent to find not a definitive answer. Now, and you'll hear him say that, but I mean, brought. I think reasonable we've come as close conclusion. as we've ever come to figuring it out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this was this is a little bit different. It's uh, his his investigative skills are fantastic. So this is I think you guys are really going to like this one. And he knows some of our prior guests, like Jack Garcia and Joe Pistone. So what is all in the family? So Murph, but before we go. can talk about it, I got to <laughs> ask you one question. Yeah, are you ready to play? And this is a tired question too. That's why it's taking <laughs> us so long to get here. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all? The game of crimes. Absolutely, everybody, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Let's hear what happened. What really happened to the Anne Frank and her family? Everybody, welcome back. This is going to be again another exciting. This is a unique episode. It is. We we have done cold cases before, but I would venture to say this is probably one of the most globally recognized cold cases there is. And I like what you said on the website. We're going to talk to Vince here in just a second. It's less a mystery unsolved than a secret well kept. And what is the secret that has been held since 
19, you know, 40s, the, 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 during World War II. And what we're talking about is the betrayal of Anne Frank. And we're bringing on somebody who might know a little bit about that because he did the investigation on the case, Vince Pankok, unless it's the German pronunciation, Vince Mankoke. Yeah, well, good good morning, everybody. Glad to or have you here. Or as they say, guten Morgen in yeah, German. Guten Morgen, also in Dutch, too. Uh, in Dutch, too, and in Swedish, it's gut morgen. Yes. <laughs> All right. Can we get back to Vince's story here? You're well, that means you're a good moron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say that. Yeah. Vince, it is an honor to have you on here. Um, and for our listeners, Vince is a retired FBI agent. Uh, you know, we, we always, promise not to hold that against him. We always recognize our FBI brothers and sisters. We might give them a hard time everywhere, but uh, you know it's all tongue-in-cheek, and we don't take ourselves too serious here. So welcome to the Game of Crimes, brother. Thank, thank you for saying retired, because I get so many people that say former FBI agent, and I go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. The term former in law enforcement lingo generally means you either quit or got fired. <laughs> Good point. If you're a retired agent, whether it be FBI, DEA, or any of the other services, it meant you completed the marathon. There you go. Well, unless you go back to our episode with Kevin Black that we just did, Murph, I think he was former like three times before he finally found himself <laughs> with that sheriff. <laughs> yeah, he's got, I don't want to say a checkered past, but he's got an interesting past. Yeah, yeah. He had a sheriff, him and anyway, very famous sheriff. But anyway, let's get back to talking about you, Vince. So as we do with everybody, it's kind of like organized crime, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. You got started in a little town in Pennsylvania. In fact, I think it was called, uh, it's a site of maybe a famous flood. Yeah, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, actually, the site of three famous floods. Of course, the 1889 flood that everybody knows about, what was described as probably the worst natural disaster in U.S. history. But then also one in 1936. And I, I lived through the one in 1977. But uh, so, yeah, Johnstown, uh, former steel industry town, uh, was uh, uh, the home of a Bethlehem steel plant and also a U.S. steel plant. It's had to transform itself now um, since a lot of the steel production has gone uh, elsewhere and offshore. Also, a lot of people know Johnstown from um, uh, Flight 93, uh, where it went down. Uh, the closest bigger town to that field in Somerset County is Johnstown. So it was uh, considered sort of a, a base of operations during the whole um, effort to uh, conduct the evidence recovery. You guys were also the home of the uh, National Intelligence Center there for a period of time. NDIC. We were. And, uh, and in fact, I can remember uh, I had transferred into Miami probably about uh, 1992 and about 1993 or four, the FBI position opened up there and I had been working on a Colombian drug squad. I could have checked all the boxes that they were looking for. And so I called my wife. Um, I had two small children at that time and uh, said, Hey, the, the Johnstown NDIC office position open. What should I do? She paused a moment and she said, do you know where I am right now? 
I'm on the beach <laughs> with your kids. It's February. No, I'm not going back. Uh, and that's why we always check with the chief of domestic operations because they're right. in charge. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting, if I remember right, uh, Dennis Murtha, wasn't he the congressman? In that He was the one that kind of brought home the bacon. It was called the National Drug Intelligence Center. And so you've got Robert Byrd that got the criminal, the FBI sieges division, the Criminal Justice Information Services Division, out in Clark. Clarksburg, Clarksburg West, West Virginia, Virginia, then you had right. NDIC. And there, I, it was less I thought, thought that they were bringing home the bacon as much as you had a bunch of people going, get me the hell away from headquarters. I don't want to be anywhere near it. <laughs> that, that's probably accurate. Yeah, it was uh, Senator John Murtha, who uh, actually was a, a, a friend of my uncle's from the Marine Reserve unit. Um, and he was quite the politician. Um, and, and, uh, whether you call it pork or whether you call it just uh, trying to take care of your hometown constituents, he landed uh, so many different businesses, uh, NDIC, um, also defense contract industry is is big in that area now. I remember, yeah, he was, and the, but you know, I look at it this way, it's, it's, I think the government ought to spread the money around. I think things ought to be located in different areas, you know, and bring that out there. But anyway, we digress. Let's get back to the Colson Nostra thing of use. Actually, I'm interested. Let's talk a little bit about that flood for a minute, because I, I went through a flood in my little hometown of Chapman, Kansas. It was bad, like for three or four days. Water was like up to the doorsteps of a lot of places. There's a lot of damage, but no loss of life. But how bad was the flood in uh, 77 there in Johnstown? Well, and it was, it was bad. Um, Johnstown, for those people that don't know the geography there, the city itself is built down in a valley where there's a confluence of rivers. Um, Which I, is good for steel industry and stuff, but bad if you don't want to get flooded, right? Well, yeah. And the old joke there was that whenever the settlers first arrived, the Native Americans, indigenous to that area, said, white man, don't build near river. It floods. Well, they didn't listen very well. And uh, three different times, you know, they had, they had major floods there. But in 77, um, it was an unprecedented rainstorm that put down about 13 inches in an hour, oh, and that wow. went on for oh my most, God. most of the night. And um, uh, so all of the, the waterways overflowed, but that's not cr what created the majority of the loss of life. There was an earthen dam that broke, and um, that then backed up everything else once all of that debris uh, cluttered into the riverway. And um, I think there were 63 or more people that actually perished, but perished. But the loss of of um, property and damage uh, was just something that you you can't even imagine. My dad worked on the Connemouth and Black Lake Railroad, which was a short line railroad that serviced Bethlehem Steel. He said, I knew it was bad. He was a yard master at that time. So he was up in a tower directing the different uh, locomotives. He says, I know it's bad when you see a locomotive that was, I forget how many tons he said it was, 80, 100 tons floating by. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> I was thinking of that old... Uh... Uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford song, you load 16 tons. I, but to think of an A80 floating, to think of rail cars floating just boggles the imagination. That's unbelievable. I had the uh, I had the opportunity to go to NDIC up there at one point, and um, I forget which office I was working out of then. But anyway, the, uh, the 
Johnstown itself, I remember the cable car going up the side of the hill there to the nice restaurant on top. And it almost sounds like Montserrat down in uh, Bogota. Kinda. It does. Not quite as high, but it's very similar. But the thing I remember most was there were two really good chocolate shops in downtown Johnstown. <laughs> of course, Hershey's <laughs> Pennsylvania's, uh, you know, yeah, around. Dude, they got good. rep the home team. Yeah, just just do east of that. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, if you're a hockey fan that Johnstown's famous for, of course, it was the uh, location for the epic movie Slapshot, uh, starring Paul Newman. Uh, and um, and also another sports town movie, All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise. I actually, when I was on the police department, did a lot of contract work on that movie. Wow. We'll have to talk about that. So let's talk about this Cosa Nostra thing of ours. So you get past the flood. Um, what made you What made you decide to get into this thing of ours? I mean, were you like uh, just running around one night watching an old episode of Mannix? Remember the old Mannix or Canon, <laughs> you know, or Columbo and decide, hey, I want to do that. You know, it's, it's not far from that. My my family, first of all, has had a history of public service, whether it was um, my grandfather, who was a city of Johnstown fireman. Um, all of his sons were in World War II in either the Army, Army Air Corps, or the Marines. Um, I had several policemen in the family, but really, that was part of the influence. But let's take a look at... You can tell from the the uh, color of my hair what time that I would have been influenced by television. And the, the big shows back then were, you know, Adam 12, the FBI with Efren Zimbalist Jr. Junior. Yeah, um, all, all and including a lot of the different war pictures that were going on. So um, it it did influence me. I, I can't say that it didn't. Um, so it was one of those things. I always kind of knew what I wanted to do, and um, it was a bit of a natural progression. But one question, did Miami Vice influence your decision? That was actually a little bit post my okay. time. But okay. It, but it, it did, because uh, the, the funny thing, <laughs> it, it, we, we joke about it, but uh, one of my uh, closest friends and partners and also happened to attend the same high school that I did, Richland High School in Johnstown. His name is Joe Vela, and we were together on our police department. And um, like what happens with a lot of policemen, they they want to expand their boundaries. So he started applying for major departments around the country and ended up at uh, Broward County Sheriff's Office, BSO, here in, uh, in Broward County, which is uh, where Fort Lauderdale is located. And that was during the time period of Miami Vice. And uh, I, I think that Joe would have to admit that may have influenced him a little bit. Hey, I'll be the first to admit it had a lot of influence on me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Oh, it had influence on you guys because, uh, you know, everybody wanted to wear, it was about the lifestyle, right? It was about the hair and the cars and the... Yeah, believe it or not, I did have hair back then. Yeah, I don't <laughs> believe it. I, I need, I, and <laughs> I think... pictures. Now, the pictures can be digitally altered. I, I don't believe that. Deep fake, deep fake. Brother, I had, I had the mullet thing going back before the mullet was now famous. That I, that, I believe, that was a... I've seen your mullet. That's a crime. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Hey, let's uh, hang on to that for just a second, guys, because we want to hop in and tell you about one of our sponsors. Game of Crimes is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, Steve, you and I, we've had these discussions 
so many times. I can't tell you whether it's about military, law enforcement, or civilians, mm-hmm. people that have experienced things in their lives. You know, everybody needs a little help sometimes. They need help changing, improving, and growing, or dealing with things from their path. You know, when we talk with Natasha, talked about her incident, some of the help she still needs years later and probably will need into that. That's why we want to talk about this, guys. You know, because the therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness, your understanding. Because sometimes you don't know where to start. We say it's like a toolkit. Sometimes you need some extra tools and people who have had this experience before that can tell you and walk you through some of these trips. Absolutely. And and getting therapy doesn't mean you have to go through a traumatic event. I mean, we all have different levels of understanding and wanting to know more about ourselves, what makes us think the way we think, what makes us do the things that we do, why other people act the way they act. So BetterHelp is a great place to get started here. It's all online. You just fill out a short questionnaire. Uh, they'll match you with a therapist. It's it's designed to work around your schedule, so it's convenient, flexible. Um, and you know what? If you're not happy with the therapist you get, you can switch it and get a different therapist at no extra cost. Yeah, and that's the great thing too. Is you know, at the end of the day, what I really like about this is is what works for you. It's not what works for them; it's what works for you. How do they help you out? What do you do? So the way to do this, folks, is discover your potential with better help. Visit BetterHelp dot com slash goc today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p dot com slash goc so hey let, let's dive that back in now and let's uh continue on with vince so but uh, now what'd you do after high school then to to prepare yourself i uh thought about it which department uh, that I might want to go to. Of course, back then there was a a trend, a favorable trend that it it wasn't like before where you just go from high school into a police department. Nowadays, you need a degree. So I I knew that um, based on what my dad told me, you have no choice. You will go to college and you will get your degree because you will be the first pancoke in the lineage to have a degree. So uh, I went, I attended the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. It was a local campus. They had some criminology courses, but uh, uh, my first degree was in sociology. And then I went on to work on my master's in police administration at Pitt and Main Campus. So I obtained my four-year degree there in, um, in Johnstown at the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. Had a lot of great mentors, uh, former uh, mayor uh, of Johnstown and for a period of time uh, was over the police advisory board in the city of Johnstown. So, um, and I knew a lot of the policemen uh, in Richland Township, which is, uh, uh, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, there are townships and then there's counties, but the township uh, was 23 square miles and where most of the businesses and airport was located for that area. So that's where I obtained my my first degree. Uh, and you probably don't know this, Vince, but uh, I'm a West Virginia University fan, so all I can say is beat Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? That's probably the PG version because it is. It very yeah, much is. <laughs> yeah. The 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 other one, uh, which sounds like Pitt, usually was the chant from the WVU or Penn State fans. Yeah, and we are an explicit podcast. So just so our listeners can hear it, it says "eat shit pit." <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked. I'm shocked about that. Uh, so, hey, Sorry, give us, uh, shocked. Give us a real quick idea too. To, give us kind of the quick, you know, thumbnail sketch of Johnstown. You know, how many people? What's it like? You know, when you when you were there, when you got out of college and getting ready to get on the PD, what's it like? 
Well, um, Johnstown at that time, again, it was transforming through the 70s. The, the 1977 flood was sort of a death nail into uh, where the steel production was king because it destroyed so much. Uh, up until that time, they had transitioned from like open hearth type coal or um, steel production uh, to electric furnaces. You know, it was like the latest thing. But after the flood, things went down downhill. There's still um, steel fabrication going on in Johnstown, but at that time, it was probably uh, I, I'm going to say between 45 and 65,000 people in the city proper. And then in the statistical metropolitan area, there was probably 250,000 people. Oh, listen, listen to that, Mr. Masters in public. <laughs> <laughs> the st- metropolitan, stati- the MSA. I mean, we would just say us little farm boys just go, this is how many people in the city, this is how many people yeah. in the county. <laughs> well, just wait. We're only partway into the podcast. You're going to hear my uh, my public school education come out somewhere along the way, <laughs> along with this Western Pennsylvania accent that I haven't been able to escape, even though I've been gone since 1987. Oh, I, I got one for you, Vince. What goes clippity-clop bang, clippity-clop bang, clippity-clop bang? I don't know what. Drive-by shooting in an Amish community. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Second time I've been able to use that joke on the yeah, podcast. And, and again, we say, don't give up your day job, Morgan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about getting onto the police department. Well, I uh, the the uh, progress there. Uh, I started to uh, apply around to different departments before I graduated uh, college. However, I did an internship on the Richland Police Department, which is where I was born and raised, and um, saw the cohesiveness. I mean, it was really a team atmosphere. It was not a large department. They had about 25 full-time men and probably 15 part-time men, um, which is, you know, if you take a look at the police departments across America, most departments are small to medium-sized departments. 75%. According to FBI statistics, 75% of all police departments in the United States have 25 or fewer sworn officers. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I wasn't, I'm not trying to downplay, you know, anything on the size of it, but we had a very progressive chief, Chief James Mock, who really tried to bring us into the 21st century, even at that time. He was um, uh, real hot on hiring college grads. He he was one of the um, uh, first chiefs that really uh, stressed continuing education within the department. So uh, I, I after I did my internship, I knew, okay, this is the profession I want to be in the rest of my life. I'm helping people. I get a good feeling about it. Um, I enjoyed the camaraderie. I'm, I'm not necessarily stuck behind a desk. Uh, so it was great. Um, right out of college, I applied and was accepted uh, uh, for a position at the um, State College Police Department uh, in Happy Valley up in State College, Pennsylvania. One of the best names for a town anywhere, Happy it, Valley. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just just a great town, a great uh, college town, a great party town. Uh, but it's a small town, though. You know, when you look at it, 
it, it is, it, it's kind of like the way Virginia Tech is with Blacksburg. There is not a big downtown. I mean, there's stuff for the kids, right? But it's, you would consider thinking the size of what Penn State is that you'd think the town would like be huge, but it's not. It isn't. No, no. And it still has that small town atmosphere, which I think a lot of the students really appreciate, you know, and, and grow to love. And I, I don't know that I have experienced alumni. Uh, I'm a Pitt alumni, but, you know, it's one of those things. Everybody I, has I, their cross to bear. And, and that is mine. I, I can't compare the uh, devotion to a college, uh, anything like I've seen with Penn State grads. Uh, I have a niece, uh, brother-in-law, and a number of other friends that are Penn State alum. And I mean, they continue to go back every year. Are they still still working on their degree? Are they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to use that joke whenever in the next time keep I coming talk back. To them. Maybe keep coming yeah. back. One of these days, you'll finally graduate. But I, but I, uh, at the same time, I had applied for the Richland Police Department, and uh, so I was juggling the, you know, do I stay local or do I go an hour and a half northeast and go to Penn State? And um, because my wife had a pretty good job at a local bank at that time, um, she was, before IT was a thing, she was sort of the IT computer guru there. We decided to stay in Johnstown, and I accepted the position there. Again, she made another location decision for you. <laughs> yes, she did at that time. It, and it was mutual, though. I mean, my parents lived there. Her mother and uh, some of her siblings lived there. Um and, you know, we had a good life. Uh, we bought uh, five acres out near the airport, built a beautiful home. Um, life was good for us at that time. But yet there's that little voice in the back of my head saying, yeah, I want to go fed. I want to go fed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, or I even considered private industry. You know, I'm thinking. Uh, what would you, you have know, done I, on the private side? Uh, perhaps corporate security. I'd. While I was um, on the, the police department, I did a lot of uh, bank security training for local banks. Um, we uh, innovated a mock uh, bank robbery exercise to try to teach some of the bank tellers really what to do in the event of a bank robbery. Um, we did a lot of training on uh, counterfeit bills, fraud. Um, so the, the fraud really, really piqued my interest to the point that the last few years on the police department, um, I, I did a lot of the fraud cases, you know, uh, uh, check counterfeiting, um, uh, any, anything dealing with, with the fraud in our area of responsibility. Um, so uh, it was, life was good. Um, and then I ended up helping uh, the local bureau people with a couple bank robberies. And, uh, and, and you mean you, would help, you helped investigate them? You guys weren't pulling these off, right? Ah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, see, yeah, yeah. Words, Gotta, words mean things. We, we've had some folks on the show been a little dodgy. I had to clarify. <laughs> I think you were probably pretty straight, but yeah, please clarify if if there's any doubt because uh, the detractors would love to hop on that. <laughs> there the FBI is. There, I knew they were in on it. Another conspiracy theory <laughs> proven. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, uh, Dale Fry was the SRA, the senior resident agent, and uh, was a great guy. I first met Dale by, he was visiting our police department, um, and I saw him struggling out by his car. He was checking his pockets. He was checking his bag. I come out, and I said, uh, hey, Dale, is there something wrong? 
said, ah, I locked my keys in the car. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I locked my keys in the car. And you and remember the cops, we all had the old door opening tools. Yeah, you? yeah. Misspent childhood, I told him. Uh, so I, I got out the old uh, Slim Jim, as they called it back then, and uh, popped it within a couple seconds. We were pretty proficient since we had all the the shopping centers, the mall, and the business area in our area. It was something that we did almost on a daily basis. We had jokes about that, too. We said some guys are just one paycheck away from breaking into cars and stuff because they got so good at it. They were like, they'd walk up and they'd just go cha-ching, cha-ching. You know, then the car started. Then they went from where you could slide. You know, they, the old doorknobs that had the, the head on it, you could reach in with like a wire or something and get it. Then they went to the other ones. But yeah, we had one guy do it until somebody had like a fancier car and he ripped out all the wiring to the electric locks. Oh, that's not well, good. You know, there were a lot of departments uh, that started to experience that. And um, we actually came up that before we would unlock the cars, we would have, have them sign a release form just to say, in the event that there is some type of damage done, you can't hold us oh, responsible. you sneaky little bastard. You also put a consent to search form on that same thing, too. <laughs> that was in the, the small That was in the fine print, print. Yeah. which became large print on the back. Hey, look at this. They also signed a consent to search. We found 10 kilos. Look at that. Uh, look at that. Uh, well, 10 kilos in our in the city of Johnstown during that time would have been something that would have uh, that would have dominated the news for a month. It would have been like having a flood. It would have been a historic event. Yeah, right. Yeah, the, the biggest thing we ever had happen, um, and since I lived near the airport, uh, it's it's one of those things. You hear the planes coming and going, uh, and you get so used to it. And it wasn't that busy of an airport, but one night. This was probably about two or three in the morning. I heard a big twin engine plane, almost sounded like a, a B-24 Liberator, circling and circling and circling. And I'm wondering, what in the heck is that? Well, then my pager goes off. Go to the airport. Here, a, uh, guys that were smuggling an entire transport plane of marijuana Ended up, they were trying to land in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was uh, fogged over, and they had to divert and land in Johnstown. And whenever they landed in Johnstown, they weren't familiar with the runways, and they put the nose gear off into the mud and got stuck. Well, you know and, why that pilot's going, man, man, this is a <laughs> this is a very short runway, but boy, is it wide. <laughs> <laughs> and and so what. What happened, uh, one of the uh, security uh, for the airport come out with his yellow lights on, of course, because now there's a plane blocking one of the runways, and uh, the people in the plane jumped out and took off into the woods. And uh, you can imagine the eyes, uh, how big his, uh, they were like the size of saucers, they said, whenever he stuck his head up into that plane and saw what it was filled with and saw automatic weapons. Uh, laying in the cockpit area. Wow. So what, what kind of plane was it, if you remember? Was it like one of the old DC-3s or something? It was or? like a DC-3 or the one after that. That's how big it was. And, um, and then yeah, we had... I was going to tell you real quick, too. We had one of those planes. We actually had two of those. One was a King Air that had like 800 pounds of weed on it. One time, DEA was following it in. We ended up intercepting it. But the one um, that was really weird, it, it was like an old DC-3. Whatever happened, it ended up landing on the highway like, uh, you know, 25, 30 miles north and east of where I was stationed at as a trooper. I wasn't working that day, but the guys that did. But it was. It was an old DC-3. It was in such bad shape. They had like five, 
you know, 55 gallon barrels of oil back there. And the guy was just, one guy was there. His only job was to pump oil to the engine. <laughs> oh, my know, God. Because it was just, that's how much oil the thing was burning. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I mean, this was, this was uh, just the biggest thing to ever hit Johnstown. And, um, not being familiar with the area, they ran into the woods and they were caught fairly quickly afterwards. And uh, and then and then there was the proverbial, uh, you know, uh, Fed avalanche. You know, the DEA from we didn't have anybody from DEA in uh, Johnstown, but from Pittsburgh came in. The bureau guys were there, and uh, and then the investigation started. That would have been a small seizure for the DEA, man. That's like a, a, a plane load. How, yeah, you know. well, how, how many pounds of weed was on the plane? I, I'm, I'm not, I don't remember, but if you take a look at it, I mean, they were bells, which of course, you know, were nicknamed Tulas, you know, for us because when they would kick them out, but they were bells and it went from the back of the, uh, the cockpit area all the way to the tail of the plane. So I'm going to say 30, 40 bales, um, which as you even got within 20 yards of the plane, you'd you get a contact high. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you could smell it. Stuff stinks, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Especially being enclosed. No wonder those guys couldn't land the plane. <laughs> they were all freaking high. <laughs> yeah. But uh, they, they, they just didn't count on it. But uh, that, was, that was the biggest drug intervention that we were seeing there at that time. But um, that's when it, whenever I unlocked uh, Dale Fry's car, that was, that was the start of a long, uh, relationship that I had with him. And then the next time, Hey, I just found the, uh, an old news article about this in 1984. And it looks like there was an estimated three to four tons of weed on that plane. Personal, personal use. <laughs> there you go, buddy. Wow, what's personal going on up there in rural Pennsylvania, man? You guys smoking all that weed. Whew. Yeah, yeah. Well, well they, now yeah. was it, it well, but it was destined though. Where did you say it was supposed to land first, Pittsburgh, and it got diverted? Yeah, it was uh, diverted from Pittsburgh because of uh, the Pittsburgh airport being fogged in. So this, I got it wrong. This was a DC-6 carrying nearly 10 tons of weed. Whoa. Okay, I guess that what a DEA might have been interested in that one, Steve. <laughs> well, but, yeah, but you know what? I mean, nobody wants to handle it as the case agent because you got to process all that dope, and that is a <laughs> what a mess. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> you know, you take a sample, right? You know, take samples out of all the bales, and then haul it off and go burn it. Wow, that's, that's and then watch all the, the the people with no jobs and uh, nothing to do hanging out by there selling munchies, you know, and uh, having a good old time. <laughs> Well, and then, uh, you know, we had the uh, uh, the honor or dishonor of uh, having to sit there and watch it uh, until they could figure out, okay, whose jurisdiction is it? Where are we going to unload it? And then I was with uh, one of the local pilots who they tasked to try to pull the thing out of the, uh, out of the mud uh, with a combination of a tow truck and then powering up the engines. And, uh, so I'm, I'm in the plane with him and, uh, he's powering it up and it's rocking and jumping. And I looked over at him, uh, his name was Bob Augustino. He was the crown American corporation, uh, uh, jet pilot. He flew a Canadian air for them. And I said, uh, you, you are certified on this plane. He goes, Oh no, 
He goes, I'm not, he goes I've, I've never flown one of these in my life, but he goes, it's all about the same. Yeah, that's not a prerequisite. No, no. <laughs> I'm trying to think what movie was it? There was a fun one too. And they're the, the, I can't remember. They're, they're buying a chopper or whatever. And they got this pilot. They go, well, how much time have you got in this chopper? He looks down at his watch. He goes, 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, needless to say, I didn't volunteer to take off with him to uh, fly <laughs> to wherever it was going to be sitting for the rest of the That was a smart time. decision there. You might yeah. Yeah. take off's not the problem. Landing is. <laughs> Landing. Yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, well, let's talk about a couple more things before we talk about your Fed career, because I want to really get in and dig into uh, Anne Frank. But um, you were telling us uh, before we started, there was a couple uh, – you you uh, worked security for a couple of uh, famous movies that were made, and a couple actors like Paul Newman and Tom Cruise happened to be hanging around your neck of the woods. Well, actually, yeah, when the Slapshot movie was uh, going on, um, I was, I was uh, finishing up high school and in college. So, um, you know, we were able to, it was a big thing in Johnstown. Everybody wanted to go to the games and, uh, and, and watch the filming. And that was my first introduction to, uh, really the you know, movie magic as they would call it. But then while I was on the police department, um, the movie, all the right moves, uh, starring Tom Cruise, uh, was being filmed in the greater Johnstown area. And, uh, so they, they, based a lot of it in the city itself, but also in the neighboring municipalities. And uh, they were, they were uh, staging all their trailers out of the University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown uh, parking lots for a couple of the scenes. And uh, so I'm, I'm there uh, in uniform, uh, just hired as contract security through the police department. And there's a, a young Tom Cruise with a football because it was a football movie, throwing it to himself, throwing it the ball up in the air, catching it up in the air and catching it. So I figured, well, I, I don't even really know him at that point. I walk over to him and say, okay, I'm going long. And he, he hauls off, throws the ball to me. And we spent the next half hour pitching and catching the ball and just having a normal conversation. I got, got one question. Did he try to convert you to Scientology, though? I don't <laughs> think he was quite uh, quite there yet. Huh? Quite there yet. Yeah, I don't think the uh, the uh, the during that time period he seemed quite normal. That's a pretty cool story, though. Oh yeah, I was going to say, did you get a chance to meet Paul Newman? Uh, I did not. My wife's uh, father, though, at the time, uh, he had a twin brother and they were featured in one of the scenes, uh, I, I think did get to see him. And, um, one of the policemen on the police department, his girlfriend at that time, who was a figure skater, which played into the whole theme of the movie was hired as a supporting actress in the movie to be one of the girlfriends of the, uh, skaters of the, of the, the, uh, Johnstown team at that time. Very cool. Look at your brush with greatness. Well, I have another brush with greatness for you. For you, and you were—you may be unaware of this. So uh, you got onto the Bureau. What year did you go to the Academy? Uh, I, I was scheduled to go at the end of 1987. Um, it, it, that's, that's a story in and of itself, but I, I actually went in the beginning of 1988, starting the first class in 1988. I, I went to the uh, back then is when the DEA Academy was actually at the FBI Academy there. So yeah, I came was. on came on in June eighty seven. I was thinking I was reading your bio and I thought, well, we may cross paths in the hallway up there. But I left and I graduated the academy in September eighty seven. 
Yeah, we, we, we just missed one another then. I, I was scheduled to be there starting at that time period in 87, and uh, I turned in my uh, resignation to the police department. I'm getting my affairs all in order, getting the house sold, and all of a sudden I get a call from my recruiter, uh, and we got a little problem. I go, what, what's that? We're going to need to delay your class a couple times because your package wasn't complete. They needed to do one more interview. And I said, you're sure everything's okay because my resignation's in, the house is for sale. Uh, uh-huh. Dude, oh, yeah. I'm homeless. You gotta- <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be living out of my car. But, uh, but everything went through and it, and it worked out well. And remind me, I want to come back to tell you who my recruiter was. But the one thing about the DEA uh, students, uh, the recruits that were in the FBI uh, Academy at that time, because they were combined, we always said the DEA at that time, had the nicest looking female candidates. Whoever was recruiting them, they, I mean, they, they, they were. Well, come on, you, you had Jodie Foster going through and, and uh, going to interview serial killers. She's not even out of the academy yet. What are you talking about? Yeah. Isn't that funny how that works? It is. It is. But I, I, I got to tell know. you who my. Re- don't even have your badge yet, really, your gun, and yet you're allowed to go interview uh, Hannibal Lecter. I yeah. just live with father beans. Well, you know, the, we've always, we always say Hollywood never lets the truth get in the way of a good story. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of a good story, you, you want to talk about your recruiter. So. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I, w- I was uh, convinced by one of the other local agents uh, to apply. Uh, you know, we, we were working a bank robbery together. Um, uh, a captain of mine and I ended up catching the bank robbers as they emerged from the uh, a wooded area uh, that they fled into. And, and he, uh, I, I got to develop a relationship with him. And he said, what, you know, what are you doing? You're wasting your time here. Uh, apply to the bureau. Uh, you have your degree, and uh, if if you don't pass, fine. If you do, then you can decide whether to accept the position. Well, put me in touch with the recruiter, um, and I didn't know much about the bureau at that point. I hadn't read that much about it. Um, her name was Joanne Misko. Joanne Misko, and uh, uh, and uh, it uh, or no wait, let me let me correct that. No, that wasn't her name. Oh my God! I'm having a, a senior moment. I'm with you. Unfortunately, yeah, here's the deal: you could make up a name, and nobody outside <laughs> nobody you know. is going to know. But, but anyway, it'll 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 come to me. It'll that come was, to you. That was another great female agent they work with. But anyway, apparently um, not so great. You forgot her already. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. But she she turned out to be the very first uh, female. FBI. There were two that went through. She was one of the first. In fact, here, let me let me make sure I get the name right. Uh, yeah, well, you know what? I had it right. Look at that senior moment. I got her. I pulled it out. Joanne um, Pierce. No, Nisco. no. Wait, 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 you want to rephrase that? You what? I pull. I, I pulled it out of the back of my brain. There you go. Okay. <laughs> just, it, it is a family, yeah. not quite a family friendly podcast, but uh. yeah, yeah. But uh, there it is, uh, Joanne Pierce Misco. I didn't know it at the time. I'm talking to her, and she's so nice. And I'm going through the testing procedure, and uh, you know, they tell me, well, there's going to be an oral board, and it's uh, a couple people counseled me. It's a good idea to know a little bit about the history of the bureau and read through some of the books. And as I'm reading through one of the books, I'm I'm like shocked because I read that the, the first female FBI agent is the lady I've been talking to who's a recruiter. Now, here's where it gets really strange. My mother-in-law is a former or ex 
Catholic nun. Otherwise, I wouldn't have met my wife. Oh, now wait a minute. According to your according to your definition, former or ex means she got fired or kicked out. <laughs> uh, and uh, or one more thing, she quit. Oh, okay. She quit. That was that was during a, that was during a time period when uh, you know you just didn't do that. But uh, there was a whole revolt that went on uh, at a diocese in Pittsburgh, and about uh, ten or twelve of them quit. Uh, but as I'm reading further about Joanne Misko, lo and behold, she was a former nun. So whenever uh, I'm sitting down talking to her, I, you know, I gave her the secret handshake and uh, told her I read a little bit about her, told her about my mother-in-law, and, well, the rest is history. How about that? Small world. Yeah. It, it is amazing how the se- the degrees of separation are almost non-existent anymore. It's, it's... They are, and especially when it comes to law enforcement. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's it's funny you say that too. Let's let's talk a little bit about what you did in the FBI because I don't want to gloss over it too much. But uh, a lot of what we're talking here really forms the basis for you later. And, sure and the end, Frank does because it, it really it's about relationships, it's about connections, it's about you getting as you and I talk, you getting to some of the information. I mean, you just had to. It, you could not have done this just on your own, parachuting into an area. You know, having the relationships with the Dutch police, but. Let's talk about some of the things you worked on on the Bureau. So you get out, your first post is Milwaukee. Well, and um, so you know how they they do it. Murph remembers that. I'm sure that the DEA did it sort of the same way where, you know, like six weeks into your training, you get your orders, you stand up in front of the entire crowd, and you say, I think I'm going to, and I probably said Miami. And I'm actually going to, and I open the envelope up, and I'm trying to read it. And I go, I, well, the I first two know, letters match. <laughs> I don't even know if I can pronounce the name, the Eau Claire RA out of Milwaukee Division. And so I ended up in the northwest most resident agency, covering about the upper fourth of the state of Wisconsin. Three-man RA, more deer and bear than people. And people. Uh, but I tell you what, though, when I went to a little college called Fort Hay State University, we were in AIA Division One. We played Eau Claire. And Did you I, really? I believe in the national tournament, yeah. So uh, I remember, because I remember their chant was, we are Eau Claire. Eau Claire, yes, yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, it's a great, great university there, um, part of, you know, University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. Um, Great town to start in, very similar to my hometown of Johnstown. In fact, some of the neighboring communities had the same name, Altoona, Somerset, even Richland. There was sounds a, Richland. a lot. Yeah, sounds the names sound like a Pennsylvania, even though they're up in Wisconsin. And it's almost like what they did is they transported the, the, a lot of the immigrants, probably, that didn't end up in western Pennsylvania. Uh, along with Scandinavians, also ended up in Western Wisconsin. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> Again, like you say, it's funny because you have more, more, more wildlife than people in some of those areas. So, when you got up there, what constituted the bulk of your work in the three-man uh, resident agency in Eau Claire? Well, it, it, you know, considering that my territory, I was about uh, four and a half, almost five hours away from our division office. Milwaukee. So, I mean, you were literally on your own in your territory. And from Eau Claire, where our office was, um, the 
uh, length of my territory was about three and a half hours north, up into the north country. Um, we worked anything that was a federal violation. There was really no DEA presence up there, so we worked drugs. We worked bank robberies, um, a lot of white-collar fraud. Uh, there was even some foreign counterintelligence, believe it or not, because a lot of the Russian grain ships would come into the Superior Duluth port. Oh, so uh, what would give, give me an example of, a, as they say inside the business, FCI. So you're working FCI, foreign counterintelligence. What would be some of the things these uh, Russian ships, I, and I'm going to be shocked if you say they were spying on us. <laughs> well, let me add one more uh, thing into the equation. Uh, based in western Wisconsin was the Cray Research, the supercomputer company facility. That's where Seymour Cray. Uh, and the Cray supercomputers are really right. what, at that time, ran the NSA, ran all of our highest intelligence computing. Um, uh, their research and development facility was there. They had since moved their headquarters to the Twin Cities area over just across the nearby border in Minnesota. But we ended up with so many Russian and Russian students and Chinese and Chinese students that were just sort of lingering in the area, surprisingly, or not. I'm shocked. I got to tell you, I'm shocked. Um, so, but you were there for four years, though, but eventually, uh, eventually, this is where uh, you got to make a decision. So how did the opportunity in Miami come up? What were you looking to do at that point? Well, uh, back then, um, a little bit different than um, some of the other agencies um, and and. I think it's back to this now, that you would go to a small to medium-sized office. I ended up in a three-man RA because I was a former cop. Um, and so the, you did that right because you already had experience, your work and stuff. They figure if anybody could be on their own with not no supervision but less supervision, um, it might be you. It might it might be a former police officer. Either that or they didn't really like you, and that was as close <laughs> as they could get to putting you there or somewhere in Alaska, right? Do you know the thought crossed my mind? Uh, especially when my wife went on the house hunting trip, calls me. I'm I'm planning on joining her over the weekend. I was going to leave from Quantico. I planned on joining her. And she said, you know, this is a nice area out here. But uh, I think at that time it was the beginning of March. And she said, and they're very modern here. I think they have electric cars. And I go, dear, electric cars, what are you talking about? She says, yeah, I see cars. I'm looking out the hotel window. They're plugged in. I said, well, I, I have news for you. They're plugged in so they don't freeze overnight. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not modern. Um, so I, at that time, uh, you would go to a small to medium office for three to five years, and then they would rotate you to a major office, uh, one of the top 12 or top 15. And um, they asked me, I, I, I really uh, made an effort to bust my butt there and do a good job because I wanted to make sure to end up in, a, in a, an office uh, of preference. And uh, so I, I put down Washington, D.C., but Miami w was my number one choice. And uh, I remember the day I got the call from our uh, SAC who, who said, yep, uh, you ended up in Miami. You can now thaw out. After four years. <laughs> so when, when did you end up in Miami? Um, I landed in Miami in May of 1992. And, 
And Murph, when did you punch out for uh, Bogota, for Colombia? I headed out in June 1991, so we were j- just following each other both yeah. ways. Following to the academy, following to Miami. Yeah. Well, and then I followed him to Bogota, too, because we did a lot of work uh, with the guys out of the DEA office in Bogota because they had such a big presence there. Because I ended up in Miami on the Colombian drug squad, which was N3 and then later D3. So, well, you would just reminisce then with Murph. Who were, do you remember some of the guys you worked with from DEA down there? Yeah, uh, Bob Versus was uh, one of the agents. Now, I don't. I knew Bob when he was stationed in Fort yeah, Lauderdale. Yeah, he was stationed in Fort Lauderdale. He was our, our primary contact down there. And uh, we did, um, you know, a lot of great cases together. You know, people say that, you know, the DEA and, and FBI didn't, don't, didn't work together. That really wasn't true in Miami. I mean, there, there was a necessity for uh, a lot of the squads to work together. And the squad that Murph was on, what was that? Uh, in Miami? I was in Group 10, the Caribbean the group. Caribbean, it was what, C-10? Group, group 10. 10, yeah. That group worked primarily with our sister squad, which was D-5. And uh, Mike Taft, Joe Ciccarelli, uh, a lot of those guys worked um, day in and day out with the ones from Group 10. Yeah, when I when I transferred to Bogota, my partner at that time was Kevin Stevens, who we've had on the show. And uh, we had an inf- we had an informant. Long story short, we ended up combining with one of the bureau squads. I think it was D five because we were our informant. We were representing ourselves undercover as we could provide transportation of anything at any time, anywhere, boats, planes, mules, whatever you needed. And the bureau already had an undercover business set up on the Miami River, so it just all coincided together. And and uh, then I took off to language school and then down to South America, but. They went on and made a hugely successful case out of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally familiar with that case. The uh, undercover was Anibal uh, Gonzo, as we know him, uh, Anibal Gonzalez. And, I think um, you're right. It, yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the uh, some of the stories that came out of that were, were just incredible. Small world. Well, here we go. Again, we're, we're all, it used to be six degrees of Kevin Bacon, then it's three degrees of law enforcement, you know, if you don't know somebody. Um, I only had a small tour down there while you guys were there. It was playing Columbia, but during 2000. But I, I noticed when I was reading the bio, you talked about working with DOS, which is like their immigration folks. And I was working with the uh, Direccion Nacional de Estupefacientes, the DNE. Uh, Gabriel Merchand, I believe, was the director of it at that time. And uh, yeah, we just, had a, we just had a great time, stayed down in the... Um, and Dino Royale, Calle 85. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. I got to tell you too. So funny. The fun. I may have told this story before, but you know, you get old and stuff. One of the funniest things. I'm down there with a guy who had just uh, punched out of the agency. He was a operations officer, and uh, we were going to go down and work on Plan Columbia. And I'm one of those people. I just like to mess with people. Just like to have a little fun. So we're in the lobby of the in Dino Royale, and there's two guys got military haircuts. I'm going to watch this because we're you know we got hair. We don't look like anybody. And it's like hey. You, you guys are Americans, right? Hey, how you doing? What do you guys do? So I started, hey, what's your name? What do you do? Just start chatting them up. And because uh, I'll tell you about my interview interrogation story later with the Bureau. Um, <laughs> and it's just like, hey, what do you guys? Well, you know, we're foreign service. You know, we're, oh, really? When you go back to the airport, maybe we can catch a ride with you and stuff. And they're, they're like, get us the hell away from the guy. So <laughs> him and I, we got to figure out what we're going to do. So we leave, we start walking. But what, what we saw, these guys ended up meeting later in the lobby. And there's always that guy, you know, he's agency because he's got that freaking, you know, khaki vest on. You know, in the the pants, you know, and name Bob, Mike, Bill, you know, (laughs) 
Paul. Paul. That was Paul. the name down there. Ben yeah. Paul. Um, and and then there's some. Looks like there's some Colombians uh, there too, like military officers. And then they all go off, and you know, him and I are thinking, oh, look, we got to go find something to eat. So we're walking around, and we find this restaurant. And we walk in, and it's kind of like empty. You can hear stuff above us, but it's like empty on the main floor. And the lady walks up, and she goes, oh, your party's upstairs. And we're going, oh, okay. So we walk <laughs> upstairs, and guess who we run into? Paul and Bob from the CIA and all those other guys. He walks up, and he says, hey, this is a this is a private party. And I said, oh, really? Hey, what's your name? What do you guys do? <laughs> and we're well, just, oh, that was fun. fun of it. I mean, as, you know, as much as you try to blend in there, uh, listen, you don't. You don't. Uh, you don't. You don't. It sticks out. I mean, you're from one of the three-letter agencies. Yeah, and then then we went up. We ate at Montserrat. So that was a you know the power wasn't exactly reliable in Bogota. We had just made it up. The cable car got off, and the power went out. People stuck on the cable car, but all of us were up there. But fortunately, the Montserrat they used gas to cook with, so we were like we were good. We ate by candlelight. We you know they they cooked our meals. But what what a fun time! It's the first place I actually got real Colombian coffee. I knew it was Colombian because I bought it there. You know, <laughs> well that that whole experience of Montserrat uh, did. Either of you ever take the opportunity, I'm, I'm sure maybe Murph, you did, on the weekend, They, uh, especially on Sundays, they sort of have this thing where you start at the bottom, you don't take the cable car, and you hike the trail up to the top to the monastery. Have either of you done that? Uh, not me, no. <laughs> well, an incredible experience. Well, after a series of a couple technical glitches, we are back. So don't worry if it sounds a little disjointed. That's just a normal day for us. Well, you know, when I mean, you got Murphy on here, and everybody knows about Murphy's Law. And let me tell you, that's something I live with every day of my life. <laughs> I'm just going to have to have Murph literally phone it in next time. I'll just have him listen in from my side, and we'll uh, do it. Hey, but, but I want to ask you before we moved on. I just realized I forgot to ask. Did you catch any Russians, though, in Milwaukee? We, we didn't catch any Russians. However, um, during that time period, surprisingly, um, there was a Russian-based business that was based uh, outside of Milwaukee. It was the Belarus Tractor Factory. Nobody could figure why there was this tractor factory that was Russian-owned that was there. It was some kind of economic exchange. Turned out probably all they were trying to do was steal the Briggs and Stratton and Tecumseh air-cooled engine technology. Um, but the the game was trying to figure out who the Russian intelligence officials were that actually worked in the factory. Yeah, and trying to find because they would have been technically they would have been under non-official cover. They they would have been called illegals because you got legal residents and then illegal residents, and they would have been having to offer operate right as an illegal, right? Right. Yeah they they were they were posing as um, management within certain offices of the tractor factory, uh, but the question always was, well, which one of them? Uh, was was the one or more which, than one. Yeah, which one? Uh, here it is, a, a, a tractor factory produces no tractors, but yet they seem to hold <laughs> lots of meetings, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the only other thing we had, we did have a, uh, uh, a Russian student caught in one of the dumpsters, digging in a dumpster. Uh, she was attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, uh, which is the main campus, and they caught her digging in the dumpster in Chippewa Falls, which is probably about three hours away. And uh, the gray security caught her and uh, then released her and uh, because she didn't steal anything. And 
but who knows what she was looking for. And then whenever the Madison resident agency went to try to talk to her and find her at the at the college, uh, she was gone. Of course. Yeah. Well, I tell you, but you know what, you know, and I know what they're looking for. I mean, you, you wouldn't believe the stuff people throw away that ends up in the trash oh, that can yeah. give you names, passwords, phone numbers, you know, information. Oh, uh, absolutely. My wife thinks I'm crazy because most of the stuff we get in the mail, I put in the shred box and I shred it myself. I've got a nice shredder. And she's like, why do you keep doing that? Well, have we been hacked yet? Which I probably shouldn't have said that on here because now people are going to hack me, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> they're they're going to do it just out of principle. Yeah. Well, I, well, I actually hit, we had our uh, identity stolen as as probably just about every American through the data breaches that have gone on. Either at OPM, if you were a government worker, but even uh, uh, I think it was Experian. Uh, had oh their, yeah, Experian had that, and then LEO, the law enforcement online. Somebody there was a breach, and there was just another breach uh, lately too. Uh, usually, third party contractors or somebody allowing access. The only thing that ticked me off about the OPM breach, I figured the Chinese were going to have all of our information at some point anyway. But I'm the one with the clearance in the family, not my wife. Who do you think got the letter 90 days before I got my letter? It <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. just shows you the level of importance you have there, Morgan. <laughs> the, the poor guy that was, uh, he was a, a Haitian who bought the info from the dark web and filed for a credit card uh, under my name and knew when it was coming to the house because I hadn't signed up for postal informed delivery which if you haven't done that, do it now. It shows you in an email every day what's coming in your mail. Well, he had signed up under my name to a false email, saw when a credit card was supposed to be coming to my house. Luckily, I already knew when it was coming, and he showed up at the mailbox, and I was there. So uh, he's now in jail. The FBI always gets their mail. I love it. Gotta love it. (laughs) This, This time it worked. Well, I do. I get the same thing, too. I've got the U.S. Post Office Inform. It's even got the mobile app, too. I think they changed. But it's, yeah, we, we've, got a, we've got a person who delivers the mail who is uh, challenged. And I would say it's a safe bet to say one out of every five times our mail ends up in our neighbor's mailbox or their mail ends up in ours. And it's like, how could you drive down a street, shove a bunch of mail into it, and then bypass three more mailboxes going, oh, apparently nobody has mail today. And then, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I think his brother That's, or sister works down here in Orlando because it's, holy cow. <laughs> they're all related. When you figure it out, they're all related. But hey, let's kind of wind back. I don't want to, I, I, we're going to get into a lot of your bureau stuff as we talk about the M. Frank case, but but like you said, you worked 10 years down in Miami. So as you were going through your bureau uh, career, at what point did this start becoming of interest to you? In other words, was it only until you had retired and you became a retired, FBI, not a former, not an ex, but a retired, right? At what point did, at what point did Anne Frank start registering um, on your radar? Well, Like most children in America, during middle school, uh, we read the diary of Anne Frank, although our our teacher at that time, I think it was eighth grade, only it was one of the suggested readings, and we only had to read a few chapters and and do a book report on it. Other than that, I mean, it wasn't in my mind. Well, World War II was always on my mind because, again, as we spoke about earlier, I grew up with so many of the different uh, war uh, television shows, combat, the Rat Patrol, uh, the different movies throughout uh, my uh, formative years, hearing my dad and his brothers 
talk about their wartime and my dad's unit in his account of liberating a small subcamp of Dachau. This would have been in probably early May of 1945. World War II and that topic has always been on my mind. I love to read about it. I love to to educate myself on it. It's it's a very broad topic. Uh, I'm right there with you. My dad was World War II and a Vietnam vet. Um, got out right before wow. Korea. Yeah, came back in. I was born at a military base. Huge World War II buff. And then actually in high school, uh, the senior play, I date myself too, but I graduated high school in 1978. But I was Mr. Von Damme in the Diary of Anne Frank. We actually did the play. I, Janice Schuler was Mrs. Von Damme. Uh, you know, and so I, I remember the it was different too because we did the play and I think the play was more historically accurate. It wasn't like today where you take a lot of liberties and you put stuff on TV, like made for TV. Like Murph, you might have a little experience with that. What's the old standard uh, ratio you kind of give for narcos in terms of what's accurate, what's in the ballpark and what's just pure BS. Yeah. So in narcos, you figure about a third of it is true. A third of it, those events happen, but they're not depicted correctly. And that last third is just straight out of Hollywood bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it made an exciting series, you know. We 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 call it uh, you know, uh literary liberties. Literary license artistic license, as the French would say, artistic license. And it's right it's right in your contract. There's nothing you can do about it. So but 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 as you go through your bureau career, so where do you where do you end up at? Where do where's your final post? Where do you retire from? I actually retired out of Miami. When I landed there in ninety-two, ended up on the Columbian squad, dead debt for 10 years, and then, lo and behold, 9-11 happens. Um, and when 9-11 happened, uh, we, we sort of got diverted a little bit because... Uh, I mean, that was all, all hands on deck, right? And, and Well, I, I know this too from my work at DOJ, but 12 of the 19 hijackers, I think, uh, had a nexus in Florida, right? Or even more? Absolutely. 12 of them had a nexus here. And because the uh, terrorism squad at that time didn't have the telephone exploitation skills that a Colombian drug squad did, because our bread and butter was telephone exploitation and wiretaps. That was what our squad did better than any other. And you and Murph both love writing applications for Title Threes, right? Title Threes <laughs> were what you guys love to do, right? Oh Lord, it, it was our bread and butter, you know. And um, and you know, Murph can tell you how hard it is to infiltrate a Colombian group with an undercover. Now you can utilize sources, but you know they they got all smart and onto that. So the the one way to kind of defeat them was through tapping their phones. Um, and because at that time, dumping of phones was very common and, and usually tried to defeat law enforcement efforts, but we became so skilled at being able to exploit everything about a phone. I, I tell people nowadays, give me your cell phone. I could tell you everything about you. I could tell you your friends, your enemies. I could tell where you eat, where you live, who your girlfriends are, your, 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 uh, banking habits. Everything from your cell phone. Yep, and there are, you can create a pattern in life. You can, and even if you change your number, you know, Vince, we could probably find your new number. Right, and we would do that because your circle never really changes. And so we were so good at that that after the first couple days went by and everybody was, was uh, you know, it's like that punch in a fight, that first punch, you're a little bit stunned. And I think 
the Bureau and all the law enforcement agencies were a little stunned at 9-11. But then, you know, you get back into the fight and they came down to us and said, listen, you guys are better at this than us. What can you do? So um, uh, myself and about 12 other people, including including Gonzo, who uh, I mentioned Murph earlier, was the undercover uh, on the River Rats case. He, um, he and my partner Enrique Mercadol and a bunch of the other guys that were used to this type of exploitation, we formed a squad and we worked for about three months on nothing but exploiting the hijackers' phone numbers. Um, and we found so much information. It was incredible. We tracked it back down to the Hamburg cell. We identified that. Which that was Mohammed Atta was basically came out of Hamburg over here, Nawaf al-Hazmi. I mean, I, we can, same thing, we can go through all the, and you know, you were talking about a little thing we, we were discussing this. I, we may have been offline at the time, but you were talking about NCIC offline. And I, I was talking about, you know, and that's the thing too. When they went back and they looked at it, this is one of the things that drove my work down at the Department of Justice, but you had Nawaf al-Hazmi was stopped. Here's an example. Stopped by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol in April, written a traffic ticket. So you know he was checked to see if he had warrants, so he would have had an entry in NCIC, checked his registration, driver's license. He's put on a State Department watch list in August. Why would you put somebody on a watch list who's already in the country? Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's already here. It, it's defeating the purpose of it, unless he would leave and come back. And of course, that wasn't that wasn't going to stop him at that point either. No. Oh, except no. it would have him if he'd been on the watch list. I'm just I'm watching uh, I'm I'm watching Vince here on a camera, and we only you know we only post our audio, but we see each other on video, and I can see how excited you're getting. And I can imagine those guys coming down saying, "What can you guys do?" And you're looking at him going, "Hold my beer." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that was that was about it. And um, I mean, we worked uh, seven days a week, twelve hours a day, um, working with all of the the uh, different agencies and technical capabilities. And you know, we had people within our own office and outside of it saying, "What what does this matter? They're dead. What what does this matter?" And I go, "You do you really?" Uh, hear yourself. Yeah, exactly. What we're thinking is that these hijackers, there may be more. This may be wave one. There's wave two, wave three. I want to know who their circles are. Yes, they're dead. We can't prosecute them, but we have to determine how this happened, who assisted them. Is there going to be another incident? that happens out of it. Which was and a we, tactic of Al-Qaeda and stuff. They would have the attack and then you would have follow-on attacks and you would have exactly. Tanzania, Kenya. You know, you, we think about the embassy, I mean, Nairobi. You think about the embassy bombing. So yeah, it's for somebody to go, well, what's good is that? Oh, well, I guess we I, just shouldn't investigate it at all then, huh? And I, I told them that. I did a month in Kenya um, in Nairobi after the embassy bombing, but I was there uh, with a SWAT unit. We were providing security for the different investigative teams that would come in. But, you know, as my time there, uh, you know, we became familiar with how it happened, where it happened, how it uh, also happened in Tanzania. Um, so, and, and many of these agents on the Miami terrorism squad never came in contact with anything like this before. I mean, it just wasn't something that they experienced. And if you think about it, if if you're the people that we know about are the suicide bombers. Those are the identities. If they're going, if they're willing to let you sacrifice your life, you're expendable. You're not the brains of the operation. You know, for so for somebody to ask you, oh, they're all dead. Well, that, that is that's very short sighted thinking on their part. 
Oh, it is. And and the amount of information that we developed out of the cell phones were, it was just amazing, people. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, answer to the extent that you feel comfortable answering. But That sounds like a loaded uh, question. It's, it's kind of like... <laughs> well, look, it was like when we talked to Ed Davis. Uh, Ed Davis is a friend of mine. He was the commissioner of the Boston police. We talked about the the Boston Marathon bombings, and he said there are still people uh, that need to be held to account, basically in Boston. There's there's other people. Have we? Do you feel comfortable even after the 9/11 Commission report? Do you feel like we have discovered everything we could have, or is was there still stuff out of 9/11 that we should still be concerned about here in the U.S.? I think we would be naive to think that there isn't something else out there. I mean, there were a lot of leads that uh, there were so many leads that were um, because of the volume were going uh, ignored. You had two different things. We had the investigation of the people responsible and, and anybody that they came in contact with. And then, Probably on a much greater level, you had all of the phone calls coming in to the bureau office. Uh, I think my neighbor might be Muslim, and and so I'm worried about that. Uh, you know, just crazy, crazy calls that were coming in that were unrelated, but you you couldn't ignore them. Uh, you had to do a triage, so they developed a, a sort of a triage type uh, protocol to go through these different things. Um, and the phones rang nonstop. I walked by that phone center. I couldn't believe the tips that were coming in. Bravo to the public for, you know, actually jumping in and, and be willing to help law enforcement. But uh, I, I have to say that uh, 99% of it was just white noise. It was, you had to filter through it to find out anything that was of, of substance. But the one story you guys might, sort of get a kick out of is that we saw an increased flurry of activity on all of the cell phones just prior to the 4th of July holiday, leading up to the 4th of July holiday. And, and it was really interesting. So what we would do is we would develop leads and we would send teams of agents out to find out who these people were that, that uh, these phone numbers belong to, interview them, find out if they remember the hijackers, take photo spreads. What was their contact? Do you know that flurry was mostly escort services <laughs> here in South Florida? <laughs> which, yeah. which, you know, the, the, the one last hurrah before our jihad, you know, we're going to go out. Um, and that's, they, they saw that with the folks because I drove past three of them motherfuckers that morning, and I'll say it because I was headed into the Reagan building that morning. So I passed those assholes going out to Dulles Airport Wow! on the toll wow. road, you know, and we were in the Reagan building. We had meetings in the Pentagon. Fortunately, we were in the Reagan building to begin with first. I remember walking across the Roslyn Bridge, going into Roslyn, watching the smoke come up out of the Pentagon. And it's like, yeah, to your point, it's like, and guess what they were doing? Strip clubs, you know, mm -hmm. out having their one last hurrah. Well, they're, you know, trying to get an advanced start on their 72 virgins. <laughs> right. Yeah. You will find no virgins at the strip club, my friend. I've heard. I've heard. I, uh, allegedly. Allegedly. I, uh, the, the one interview was interesting because it was an escort who um, only cooperated if her name wouldn't come into it. And you know how that goes. Uh, of course, you're going to tell them that we need the information. Tell us. And she said, uh, my husband doesn't know what I do. I just do this for spending money. But 
I will tell you that I visited with this hijacker on several occasions, and uh, and you know we were intimate. And on the last occasion, he told me, "This is the last time I'll ever see you again." And uh, she said, "Well, oh, you know, you're you're leaving, um, you're you're leaving South Florida." And he goes, "Yeah, something like that." So we, you know, once we were done with our phone project, which was pretty much at the beginning of uh, 2002, we handed everything off to our New York office. And uh, later, you know, we had different. Uh, messages come through where somebody in the intel community based on a lot of the interviews that we sent up and the telephone analysis thought instead of it being 911 it was probably going to be 74 and uh, you know i just found that very interesting i i don't have any evidence to prove that well here's a here's an interesting historical analogy because you know you have to dates are very significant to al qaeda very dates are very significant to islamic terrorists you know the, there are things that mean something to them the 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 madrid bombings uh, and so historically when you go back and look at it uh september 11th 1683 i believe was the last incursion uh, of the Ottoman Empire into Europe, and they were stopped at the gates of uh, um, Austria, uh, you know, with Germanic forces and Polish forces, and that was September 11th, 1683. I, I did hear that, yeah, yeah. So you, you wonder, was that really the, the date, or, you know, was it just more of an organic thing that this is when everything was in place and it worked out? Well, and that's the thing is, obviously, they're dead. You got Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, but he's, uh, you know, he's in a hole in Gitmo, and, I, I, you know, we don't know whenever he's going to be tried because he was the one of the masterminds of this, too. But, yeah, everything's significant, right, to hit people on a significant date like September 4th, you know, or— uh, and then maybe that was the alternative. You know, the fallback was 9-11. Again, not, not a conspiracy theory, but it goes back to one of the things. You have to understand your adversary, understand their doctrine. It doesn't matter what you think. It only matters what your adversary thinks. Yes, exactly. But that that ended up being the transition then from all of the, the uh, Colombian squads being told, listen, um, you know, the handwriting's on the wall. They're, they're going to be converted to terrorism squads. Uh, are you interested in becoming the supervisor of uh, D3, which is going to be a terrorism squad? Terrorism really wasn't my thing. So I said, no, I, you know, I, I, I think I'll look elsewhere. And they said, well, we, we do have a project that we uh, might, you might want to think about, though. It's called the Gitmo Project, that you would be the bureau representative to at club, Gitmo. Oh, to Club Gitmo. <laughs> to Club Gitmo. <laughs> I, I I thought about that for a hot second and said, no, I, I don't think so. I've been to Gitmo uh, on uh, flights, uh, extradition flights out of Columbia. We'd stop at uh, Gitmo and then uh, and then come into uh, Fort Lauderdale. But uh, very wise I opted, choice. <laughs> I, I I opted for a uh, spot. One of my squad mates, longtime friend Martin Suarez, uh, was out running the undercover group. Um, it was called Stagehand. It was a backstopping undercover group. There are several of them around the country that the Bureau relies on for undercover operations. And um, uh, I ended up uh, with another one of my squad mates jumping out to Stagehand. And I was pretty much in the undercover group then from 2002 uh, almost until the, the year that I retired, which uh, was at the mandatory age of 57 in November of, of uh, 19 or of uh, 2014. So, so what kind of UC work were you doing? 
Um, well, I I ended up. Uh, were you were, were you going undercover as an Amish farmer importing cocaine because <laughs> you had the Western Pennsylvania accent? Did you have to grow the beard, Jedediah? And I had that experience uh, and, and probably could have pulled it off. But, but you listen, did go I, UC as an Amish farmer? Uh, no, but what I ended up doing was what I do good, and that's playing uh, a, a dumb investor very well. Uh, because, uh, you know, my track record of investments isn't that good. Um, oftentimes, I would play a, a very rich um, investor in some of these fraud schemes, teamed up with, uh, most times, uh, who's probably one of the best bureau undercovers in stock fraud cases, Joe Yastrzemski. He's a legend. Uh, was a Series 7 uh, license holder, stockbroker uh, during the heyday in uh, New York um, uh, on Wall Street, and then got recruited to come into the Bureau. And uh, so he and I and a, a number of the other undercovers teamed up, and uh, we were a team, and uh, we, we just had so much fun at it. In fact, uh, the, the bad boy of Raw Wall Street, Ross Mandel, who ran Sky Capital, um, they tried targeting him for years. SEC, different agencies, never could get him. And finally, Joe and I went into it and targeted him. Um, we ended up flipping one of his uh, floor managers who ran the trading floor, a guy by the name of Phil Akel. And uh, then he cooperated, and uh, Ross Mandel finally went down. Even though it occurred after the movie Wall Street was about uh, out, it almost, if you, if you see the real-life Sky Capital and Ross Mandel, that was Gordon Gecko. Yeah. Hey, did you—so uh, guess who we had on our podcast before? Jack Garcia. No, Big Jack and I have worked at a number of cases <laughs> together. We're very close friends. And also Joe Pistone. And uh, of course, Joe, Joe was in the uh, undercover unit that I was in and had just left and retired. Uh, and so that was one of the spots that I ended up coming in and, and filling. You and, took Joe Pistone's place? Oh, wow. no one can ever. Oh, take I, no Joe's one could take his place, fill his shoes, but you took his <laughs> slot, right? Yeah. One of the slots that was open during that time period. Yeah. Now the, the, the funny thing about the whole story of Joe Pistone, okay, of course, a lot of people say, who's, who's Joe Pistone? You got to say, well, Donnie Brasco. Donnie Brasco. Oh, the movie, Donnie Brasco. Yes, yeah. yes. I had, even though I knew Joe, and I, I never worked with him in an undercover capacity, but I knew him well. One day, I get a call. Um, and of course, nobody could, we worked out of an offsite location, just your typical office that people would drive by. Nobody knew what it was. Um, I get a call. All calls would be routed through a cutout phone that would go through our main office. I get a call from the office operator who said, I have somebody by the name of Donnie Brasco on the line that wants to talk to you. And I said, oh, come on. Now who's screwing with me? Donnie Brasco. Yeah, right. So, Is this while the operation was still going on or it was over at that point? Uh, which operation? Oh, Donnie Brasco. You're talking oh, about? No, it was long after. Okay. Long okay. after. Yeah, yeah, long after. So I get a call, and and they patch it through, and he goes, hi, hi, you know, how you doing? This is Donnie Brasco from the Philadelphia division. And I go, yeah, or, <laughs> you know, because cops being cops, law enforcement, they screw with one another. I go, who is this? He goes, uh, no, this is Donnie Brasco. And I go, yeah, this is, I know Joe's voice. This isn't Joe. 
who are you? He goes, well, I'm his nephew. And I paused a little bit. He goes, you don't know the story. And I go, no, I, I don't know the story. He said, back then, Joe adopted my name. I'm his nephew. My name, Donnie Brasco, is his undercover name. Because there weren't computers, there weren't ways to search it back then. Back then, all you needed was a driver's license at the most under your undercover name, and you could get around. They didn't have the, the publicly available databases or anything like they do now. I said, he took your name. What kind of living hell are you going through every time you call somebody and say that your name is Donnie Brasco? He says, you have no idea at the pain I feel. And it, the first documented federal case of identity theft. <laughs> did, did you guys hear this story? Did yeah. you know this story? Yeah, we, yeah. we got it from Joe because what, one of our questions always asked, where'd you get your UC name from? How'd you come up with it? Because you always want to, you know, most people, we had um, Dominic Polifron, who was the ATF agent who brought down Richard Kuklinski. Well, do, he used the name Dominic you know, as his first name, because you always, you don't want to, but we, Joe, but Joe did uh, Donnie Brasco. So it was like, oh, that's. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, you know, the, the beautiful thing about it is Donnie actually went on to become a certified undercover agent. Oh, cool. Of course, couldn't so use what does Donnie name. Brasco use for an undercover Joe name? Joe Pistone? <laughs> yeah, that's, Joe Pistone. We, we kidded with him. We said, that's what you ought to do. <laughs> but, but no, of course he didn't. So, um, but. Uh, so I worked all those years, um, you know, a number of different kind of cases. Um, we also did a lot of the backstopping, uh, which, you know, helped undercovers create their legends. Well, and, and that had to change from, like you say, from when you just, they would hand out driver's license and passports like candy. You could get that to where now you've got social media and you've got LexisNexis, you've got internet search, you got private detectives and investigators who have almost as much access as cops do to records. Well, and that's what I tell people all the time. You know, you think the government has all this information. You have no idea what the public databases have that you can buy a subscription for. You know, they actually have uh, access to almost more information than law enforcement does in some areas. Um, but I, I was lucky. I came in in 2002, and that was, I was on the on-ramp of the information superhighway as far as it started to go with backstopping. So I was there to be able to be talking about um, uh, creating backstopping in a way that all of this could be protected. You know, whether if somebody ran you, um, we had methods that some of which I can't even discuss, but it would come back that you were a real person. Of course, you know, as as I started to get longer in my career and about the time I retired, we were facing even greater obstacles with uh, facial recognition, something that, you know, if you're dealing on an international scale, you, you, you know, almost impossible to defeat. Yeah. And that, that's the other thing. Now that now that you're enrolling biometrics on passports, I was talking to somebody from the CIA the agency, as we say inside the Beltway, um, you know, but uh, th that that has become uh, an issue with they're going to resorting to what they call true name. Now, you almost have to operate under your true name. 
and make sure because you now look at you, you say you're doing a backstop. You cannot go fake a social media history credibly or a LinkedIn history credibly. You know, I've seen you've seen all those ones like they steal somebody's picture and they've only got two entries and the account was created five days ago. <laughs> yeah, okay, right. But you got some sophisticated stuff. So, but so, but you like you're doing a lot of this. I mean, because this is going to play into what we want to talk about: the, the issue of identity, the issue of looking behind, knowing where to find information, looking where people are going to document things. And as we talk about M. Frank, the, the Germans and the Russians were almost alike in a lot of senses. Like there was a lot of paperwork for everything. There were documents for everything. So as you got towards the end of your career, your twenty, uh, how many years? Twenty seven, you said. 27 with the Bureau and 8 with my uh, Richland Police Department. So you got 35 years in. Um, as you start as you start um, coming, your glide path starts bringing you to the end of your Bureau career, when did Anne Frank start playing a factor in what you were doing, before or after? Well, uh, a little bit before. In 2005, uh, we made our first trip to the Netherlands. Um, our group in Miami, we did a lot of outreach and working with the, um, the various big five NATO partners, countries whose police departments recognized undercover operations and wanted to cooperate in joint backstopping. Uh, if we could backstop some of their undercovers from the Netherlands in the United States, it would make it that much more difficult for their criminals to investigate them, and vice versa. Uh, even off-site locations we created in in various countries, you know, and and we were dealing with Poland, Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark, Australia. You know, uh, it was very similar techniques. And uh, so we did some exchanges uh, of undercovers with the Netherlands, with the Dutch National Police. And it was during that time I was working with a Dutch undercover in Amsterdam. And we drove past uh, which, what is known as the Anne Frank House. And he pointed over to it. And he goes, over there is the Anne Frank House that you probably know a little bit about from the diary. And, man, there was a line that was of people waiting to get in. It, it went almost around the entire block. And I said, wow, you know, man, if we have time, I would love to go over and see that, you know, because again, all tied into World War II. I also wanted to get down to the southern part of the Netherlands where Operation Market Garden took place because I had an uncle on my mother's side that took part in that, in a landed in a glider with one of the airborne units. One of um, my, yeah, Montgomery's uh, attempt at glory did not go so well. Uh, not well at and all. And that's where you got the movies like, that's where they came up with the term, A Bridge Too Far. I think, you know, The Bridge yes. of Remagen, you've got uh, stuff like that. It's just, yeah, it was uh, Monty's attempt to uh, upstage, because uh, this was after D-Day. Operation Market Garden was after D-Day, and that was supposed yes. to be, oh, we're going to crush Germany. And, of course, Germany had other plans, and it didn't go didn't go according to our plans. No, and that, that whole thing, um, you know, let's jumping forward into the whole Anne Frank story. I mean, they had illegal radios in that, that house, which was really an annex that was behind Otto Frank's former business. Um, they're listening to uh, what's happening. DD happens uh, uh, June 6th, uh, 1945 or 1944. They're excited. Oh my God, the Americans are here. The British are here. Finally, the Canadians are here. Um, you know, there's going to be an effort. Then they hear what's going on in Market Garden and they're, they're like super excited. I mean, they're Otto Frank with uh, D Day is literally tracking on a pin map that still remains to this day there 
tracking the progress of the Allies, thinking, you know, we're finally, after more than two years, we're going to be able to get out of this place, and only to have their, their hopes dashed. But when we drove by, getting back to, to what brought me to it, when we drove by with the undercover, he said, you know, I'd love to take you there, but, you know, we don't have time. You know, we have to get to this appointment. And I never made it back there to go through the house and experience that at that time, nor did we have time to go to the southern part of uh, the Netherlands, which is only a few hours away. The Netherlands really isn't that big of a country. Um, and so, uh, but that that always remained in the back of my mind. And then after I retired, uh, November, 2014, um, you know, on my, I was literally, I joked that I was on the beach, you know, with my wife. Uh, but I was actually on the way to the beach with my wife when I get a call from the, um, head of the Dutch undercover unit that I dealt with at that time. And Vince, the reason you are still in Miami is because your wife made the wise decision. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we lady. are not going to Johnstown. <laughs> we're we're not going back. You know, we've uh, otherwise we, you might have been going to a farmer's field with Jedediah to pick uh, a hay and put up a building. Uh, yeah, and, and going to, going to the accordion festival. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? That's what, what I may have been done. Well, that would have been fun, but it only lasts so long, right? It does, yeah, and uh, and and that's the way retirement was, you know. I I kind of helped my daughter out with her business. She was a bridal designer for a year. I did a lot of the logistics, traveling with her to bridal shows and fashion week in uh, in New York. Um, and I got a call from the head of the Dutch undercover unit who said, "Hey, I I I have a case for you." And I said, "Yeah, but Hans Hans Schmidt is his name. He's he's now since retired." Uh, I said, I'm, I'm retired. You know that he goes, no, no, it's not that kind of case. It's more of a historic case, um, sort of a mind exercise that I know you're interested in world war two. I know your father's connection and it's, um, what may have caused the betrayal of Anne Frank, you know, and we say betrayal, but later we changed that. What caused the raid to happen? on August 4th of 1944 that resulted in the capture of Anne Frank, her family, and friends. Wow. That that had to come out of, like, were you, of all the things you could expect, right? That was came out of the restroom behind left field. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why did the Dutch police, and look, I've worked with the Dutch police before, too. Great guys. I worked with some guys named El de Young and Roy Mente, and um, I got one of their books called The Undutchables. Uh, you know, you have to understand <laughs> Dutch life, why riding a bike without a reflector is a bigger crime than walking down the street with, you know, marijuana. Um, but why, did, why, after all this time, did, did they want to find resolution in this case? What, what, what prompted it on their side to say, hey, and then why you? No, no offense, but why you? Why this American that's, you know, a continent away, you know, in five different time zones away at a minimum, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I asked all the questions that you just asked and, and maybe even a few more. You know, of course, it piqued my interest. But he explained to me, this will not be an official project. This is not a Dutch National Police project. There is a company over here uh, that consists of a filmmaker a documentary maker and a journalist who, uh, and there were a number of historians too, who are interested in why there has never been an actual cold case investigation using cold case methodology in de to determine what caused the raid. 
And uh, I mean, that uh, that answered part of the question. But the the other thing is, well, why is it still important? At that point, it was probably the raid had happened maybe 72 years before that. Why is it still important? You know, this is was in 2016. Um, and I, I had to reflect upon that for a while. And I had to talk to some Holocaust survivors. I had to um, enrich myself with um, a little bit of history on the Holocaust. I knew a little bit about it, but nothing that would ever qualify me as being an expert. Um, and, and, and you're going to find that in so many areas that I had to dip my toe into. I knew a little bit about World War II, but uh, I never qualified as an expert. But that's a funny thing with investigators, and you both can appreciate this. There are so many times that you jump into a case, and though all you may be an expert at investigative methodology, the technology and the information and the specialties that you need, you need to surround yourself with experts. And then based on the results, your investigative skills can tell you what is important and what isn't. And so, yeah, that's that was what I had to do is jump into that area. And, um, I, you know, frankly, I, I think the answer to why it was still important is to preserve and the memory of those who perished to determine what happened because, well, anti-Semitism is, is on the rise again. There's a lot of hate. There, there's, there is still around the world, there are still genocide going on of whole population groups. The Ungers in China, different tribes in Africa. That's why one of the guys that, that joined our team, he worked for the World Court in the ICC, which you're probably familiar with, um, as a war crimes investigator. Specialty was Africa. He was an Australian cold case detective that took a leave of absence to do this term uh, on the ICC at the World Court. So he had mountains of experience at dealing with this very topic on why it's so important that we look back at history's uh, past mistakes to try to learn from them and make sure that they never happen again. And that's the whole premise of study in history is you, you identify the mistakes you made with the purpose of not committing the same mistakes in the future. But man, we've gotten so far away from that, especially here in the United States about we don't care about history. We're going to make the same mistakes again. What a bunch of idiots. Well, and we're rewriting history. We're rewriting books that were written where, you know, what well, we need kinder, gentler terms. No, you need to preserve it as the way it was, because you know what? I point to everybody. I said inside China right now. The generation that is 30, 35 years old, they have no idea what Tiananmen Square is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No idea. And to this day, a lot of people don't realize over 10,000 people died during that uprising, and yet nobody in China knows about it. And, you know, Vince, you were describing how, you know, they're looking at you as a, in a leadership role to head this investigative team, but you immediately recognized what your limitations were. And, and that's this, in my book, that's a sign, that's a basic tenet of a good leader is you surround yourself with people that know the things you don't, so not, not only so you can learn, but they've got the expertise and, you know, and you're not behind the eight ball on this one. I, I love the way you described it. That was a perfect leadership tenet right there. Well, and I, you know, I always uh, say that, uh, you know, I had to admit that I don't know everything. 
the only person that I oh, wait. Whoa, don't whoa, get... whoa, whoa, whoa! Can we can, wait a minute? As a former bureau person, can you say that one more time? Well, the only person that I won't admit that to is my wife and kids, because they still think. And, and please, I hope they they don't listen to the podcast uh, because well, they, they won't listen to it. How much you know? You got some? You know, I send a guy over a joy bag of donuts. You know, hey, look. But uh, yeah, I mean, but it, it, then it came to. I even had uh, once we announced the project i even had uh you know media ask me they said oh well, this is interesting are you jewish and i go well no i'm 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 not jewish i'm human there you I'm, go i'm interested in this from a human standpoint not you know because i'm jewish you know that would it, it doesn't matter i'm interested in it yeah to try to prevent it but the other question is well why me why did i get a call well um there is a perception, I'm going to call it a false perception right from the beginning, but a, a perception in the Netherlands that everybody was a collaborator. All the policemen were collaborators. They collaborated with the Nazis. And as a result, if they would have selected a retired Dutch investigator, no matter what the results would have been, they would have looked at it as, oh, of course you came up with that result. Because you were a Dutch policeman, and Dutch policemen were collaborators during the war. And so they recommended to the group that was trying to form this uh, historical effort to get somebody from outside of the Dutch police, and perhaps even from outside of Europe that could look at this and has worked cold cases before, um, is an experienced, uh, tenured investigator. And, uh, my colleague over there, Hans said, well, I, I know somebody that recently retired from the FBI. I know his interest in world war two and perhaps he would be willing. Too bad he doesn't have any investigative experience, but we're going to have to work through that. So <laughs> <laughs> he's got the credentials. Well, uh, yeah, if uh, we we have a few detractors, I'll get to later in the Netherlands. <laughs> oh, I'll that bet called, that called this uh, an amateurish effort, um, and also called Rosemary Sullivan, who is uh, holds the highest tenured uh, position in the University of Toronto, and is an accomplished writer that has won numerous awards, and especially focuses on this time period of history. Called her a lightweight. Uh, so, I mean, you can imagine um, the academic arrogance, a term I never knew until we dipped into this, that has come out of a few people in the Netherlands that have uh, have uh, been very vocal in uh, criticizing us coming in there and doing this and criticizing our results, which is a theory. They 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 feel that we don't have the option we're not dutch we're not historians so therefore we have no voice in this i've seen that argument from authority before it's like well you don't have the credentials so therefore you can't possibly have an opinion on this it's like yeah i can have an opinion um and by the way a lot of times you get locked into that box you get that very constricted view you're in the echo chamber um but so let's talk about this so um because you mentioned a lot of things, technology is going to have to play a role in this. So how did you, what, what prompted you to finally say, yes, I'll do this? And by the way, you're retired. So is this all on your own time? Is there somebody helping uh, 
defray at least some of the costs or you know some of the other investigative uh, costs that go with this? What's the setup like for you to want to get involved with this, and how does that work going forward? Well, and uh, once again, the exact questions that I asked, you know, how how do you see this playing out? And at the time, yeah, they had no funding. And, and, but we're asking questions of me, you know, what do you think it would take for us to set up a team? What type of resources would you need? What kind of funding? How long would it take? Um, I estimated it would maybe take a year and a half, but even before these questions were answered, I needed to ask the questions, what was done before this? And any cold case investigation, you want to know what were the previous investigations? Was it attempted before? What were the results? Were there any loose threads? Was there anything left hanging? Um, what type of the job were the first two investigations? Well, and for you, 70 years later, you're one, I mean, what kind of documents still exist? You know? Exactly. Yeah. And not just now, the investigative reports, but what kind of historical documents exist? You know, did, and did you find them or do we still need to look for them? I mean, and picture this this is during a war in an occupied country that was then retaken by the Allies. And uh, as the, you know, we know as the, the, the Nazis, as the German army were retreating, they would you know, do as good a job as they could at burning and getting rid of evidence uh, related to the Holocaust. They didn't do a great job of it, and there were always trails behind. And in typical Nazi fashion, there's always duplicates and quadruplicates. And I mean, they documented everything. They documented every person that got onto a train. Why? Because they were going to charge them for the transportation to the death camp. And those records still exist to the to, to this day. Have you ever visited the Holocaust Museum here in Washington D.C.? On many occasions. In fact, the chief archivist Ron Coleman is a friend of mine, and one of the the historians there, his wife Rebecca Eberling, uh, is one of the curators and and well known expert on the Holocaust. Appeared in the recent Ken Burns films. What did America know? about the Holocaust. And, and I'll tell you, when you walk in, the smell, I still smell today, it's the smell of the shoe leather, the shoes, you know. That place, if, and for our listeners, if you ever get the opportunity and you want a moving experience, go experience that. They, And you probably know this, Vince, they even uh, offer executive level, uh, I don't want to call it a training course, but executive level sessions where, and I did that. I, I called them, we set up an appointment, and I took my, I was running those diffusion center at the time. I took my entire executive staff down there for a half a day. And man, if you don't come out of there with a tear in your eye, you are one cold hearted son of a gun. Uh, do you know that's now part of the FBI curriculum at the academy? That they go up and they actually, complete, uh, new agents complete that course. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Which is, is, is something that we're seeing at different Holocaust centers throughout the U.S., they're inviting the, the various law enforcement agencies in to explain to them the Holocaust, make them understand, and then sort of translate it to what we see happening today with hate groups. And once again, we're studying history so we don't make the same mistakes again. I love it. All right. Well, continue on, good sir. You are now. What? How long does it take you to make the decision that you said, I'm in? 
Uh, okay, falling back to uh, you know the requests of my wife for transfer, <laughs> I said, listen, I'm, I've been retired for a little more than a year now. Are you getting tired of me? I would love to be able to do this project. And you know, my wife has always been my biggest supporter. And she said, of course, this is something you have to do. So I, um, you know, after I, again, did some background search, you know, I, I asked them, I go, so you want a cold case? Um, are there any witnesses to interview? Um, no, they're all dead. Are there documents relating to this? Um, uh, is there anything I'm going to be able to find? Well, there's never been a, any real evidence found, physical evidence found. Okay. Um, and what about prior investigations? Well, there were two prior official investigations, one in 1948 and one in 1963. And that struck me odd. Man, 63 from 1945, the war was over. That's a long time. Um, and we'll get to that later on, on what actually prompted that. But found out that they never really had any conclusion. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.